um, if you start looking at where we've been and where we're going uh, right now in, in Hebrews, you see sort of a parallel structure. We had talked in most of Hebrews 1 about how Jesus was greater than the angels as the mediator of the new covenant, and he follows that up in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, with an exhortation to not neglect the salvation and not drift away from it based upon that. That if the transgressions under the old covenant received a just recompense of how much worse punishment will the man be who neglects the salvation brought by the Lord. So he, he has sort of a teaching section and then he brings the exhortation that follows logically from that. We've done that again now in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We have the teaching section of Jesus greater than Moses. And he's following that up now with an exhortation uh, more or less based upon that, and I think very closely tied to some of the points that he made in 1 through 6. Um, and so it's... it's you know, you see the writer of Hebrews doing this a lot. I mean, he can't wait to get to the exhortations. He's teaching what he's teaching to show how important it is to stay with the Lord and not fall back in unbelief, not drift away. Um, I think he's writing to people who were in danger, maybe were, were starting to uh, leave the Lord. And, and you know, so he teaches what he teaches to show why it's so important for them to stay with the Lord and stay with the gospel and not drift back into Judaism or whatever else. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, would somebody read 7 to 11? Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. For your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for four years. Therefore I was angry with this generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, um, what's he doing in this section, primarily? You can tell by the type in many of your Bibles. He's quoting. He's quoting from... No. Psalm. Psalm 95. Now what Psalm 95 does is to draw an application for that day from the events of the wilderness wandering that Moses was associated with. And, and basically, you know, he draws the application that... For in, in Psalm 95, whoever the author of that was, that that his the people he was writing to shouldn't harden their hearts like the generation under Moses that didn't get to enter into the rest because of unbelief. Now the writer of Psalm 95 is using that um, event to teach his generation the importance of not hardening their hearts, the importance of not going astray, the importance of, of not falling in unbelief, so that they don't miss out on their rest. The writer of Hebrews picks up the quotation in Psalm 95, 
and uses that to tell the people of his day of the importance of not hardening their hearts and losing out on their rest. Now he does something that's very interesting. In verse 7, notice the tense of the first verb. Says. Says. What tense is that? Present. Now, what does that tell you? He's, he's quoting Psalm 95. But he says, just as the Holy Spirit says. What would we say if we were quoting? Said. Said. You know, because that was a long time ago, even from the Hebrew writer's standpoint, when that was written. So you'd say, if I tell about something that somebody spoke yesterday or wrote yesterday, I'd say that's what they said. That's what they said in their letter. That's the normal way we do that. You know, because it was it was written previously. So the fact that he says the Holy Spirit says proves what? Still saying it. <laughs> well, he's not still writing it. It's still applicable. I mean, it's the same Exactly. It's as if he said it right then and there. Exactly. God's word is a living document. And his word still has application. When we read today what was written 2,000 years ago, it's still saying it to us. It was written for uh, every generation. And so the Hebrew writer quotes Psalm 95, but he says the Holy Spirit says. And so he's able to bring down the application to his day. He picks up a lot on this today. Now, the today of Psalm 95 was the day of the author. But it's still a today for the writer of Hebrews. Still, it's saying it today. And we're, we're going another step. We're looking back at Hebrews 2,000 years later, and we realize the Holy Spirit still says this to us, and the today applies to us as well. So this just shows, you know, you've got four generations, four eras. You've got the era of the event under Moses, the application in Psalms, the application in Hebrews, and our application that we make today. Now, this is a key text. And and I really like what he does with this text throughout this uh, next, really on down through, uh, let's say, 413. He does a lot what we might do, and and I think properly might do. If, if you're using a text for maybe your message or your, your exhortation to somebody, do you just cite it and go on and talk about something else? What do you usually do? Elaborate. You elaborate, and as you elaborate, what are you going to keep doing every once in a while? refer back. You know, you pick up words and phrases, maybe you even go back and read a verse here, there, and yonder, and say, remember what it says? It says this, and you you cite it again. Well, that's what he does throughout this. Look at verse 13. You see see that today. Look at verse 15. He cites a a verse of it. Look at chapter 4 and verse 3, and uh, chapter 4 and verse 5. And chapter 4 and verse 7, with the today and then the citation. So, and, and then several other allusions to, to some of the statements that are made. And so, this is really an exposition of Psalm 95, which was an exposition of the event of they're not getting to enter that rest because of unbelief. Alright, um, 
I guess we'll talk mostly about the meaning of this as he applies it, but do you have any comments or questions through verse 11? All right, let's see what he does with this. Uh, 12 to 15. brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. All right, now he really analyzes what the problem was with that wilderness generation. That was a tragedy. You know, to have all those people brought out of Egypt, experience the promise of salvation and the hope of the promised land, and then all of, nearly all of them fall in the wilderness. So what was their problem? They didn't believe. Yeah. It was, it was a problem. They, they were not believing. They did not really trust in the Lord. Now, that is a contrast with verses 1 through 6. Because what was the quality that Jesus and Moses had in common? Faithful. They were faithful. But the wilderness generation was unbelieving, unfaithful. They didn't have that characteristic. And was this a superficial thing with the wilderness generation? No, it was an unbelieving what? Heart. Heart, yeah. Now, that goes back to the very words of the passage. In verse 8, do not harden your hearts. In verse 10, they always go astray in their heart. So take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. That is what really the situation is, is all about. This is not just superficial. They had heart problems. And an unbelief and hardening and an unwillingness to do what God says, that is a heart issue. He goes more deeply than some superficial condition. He traces it all the way back to the fact that their problem was they didn't have a believing heart. And, and so often, we misdiagnose problems. I was talking with somebody earlier today in a Bible study who was, oh, he's teaching a teenage class in a church that's probably not got very good teenagers. And he's doing one of these books that deals with teenage problems. And they come up with this hypothetical case stuff in all these things, putting this really, you know, interesting scenario and asking the kids what they'll do. Well, as would be predicted, the kids in this congregation, uh, you know, in this class, on the particular scenario they put, made the wrong choice. You know, and, well... It's kind of on one of those deals where, okay, 
So what do you do about that? It's probably a choice that, while it's the wrong choice, you might not be able to prove that it's sinful, but it wouldn't have been a wise choice. They made probably a symptom of a lack of spirituality. So we talked for a while about, okay, you could just say, well, that's the wrong choice. If you're ever confronted with this, here's what you ought to do. How much good is that going to do? I say nobody's going to change because the teacher said you had to do this. Now, is a question about, you know, um, a night of a gospel meeting and a championship game of a sporting event that the kid was in, in part of. And, you know, it, however you want to deal with that question, you know, it's like, if we make bad choices about that, the thing that's really worrisome about that is not so much what you missed in the meeting. The thing that's worrisome is if you really care more about the sporting event than you do about the Lord. And there may be some, I mean, there's even some questions about how to look at some of those things. But you're never going to solve that. You're never going to help that by saying, okay, here's the rule. <laughs> you know, here's, here's what you can miss for and here's what you can't miss for. You know, I mean, maybe even if people followed the rule, it's probably not going to help. I mean, because there may be people who, okay, they know the rule is, you know, here's the only thing you can miss for, and so they don't miss for anything other than that. But if their heart is, you know, not right, it's not really going to help. And so we talked a lot about how what you really got to do with those young people, that's not really the issue. And, and they've got a lot of other issues, you know, about other events and situations and so forth. But you've got to want to love God. You've got to see that, you've got to want to, to prioritize the Lord. You've got to be committed to Him. It's got to be a heart thing. And, and I like the Hebrew writer here realizing the problem here wasn't a technique thing. It's, it's that they had a, an unbelieving heart. They didn't really trust the Lord that they could go into the land and take it. And so when they had that, it, they fell away from the living God. But it, 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 we've got to look at the heart, and not just at some, you know, symptom of some specific situation in which we think somebody didn't make the right choice. And notice, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now that's the thing that we need to think about, is we're, this is the living God. <laughs> that phrase is not real common. It's used 15 times in the Old Testament and 15 times in the New Testament. The living God. Four times in Hebrews. But that's a really powerful thing to think about. You don't want to fall away from the living God. And if you see Him that way, it will cause you to trust Him more and not be so plagued by an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, I think what he's saying is that if they go back into Judaism, they really are falling away from the living God. You know, they wouldn't have looked at it that way, but that's the way he sees that. All right, question or comments uh, through verse 12. So what's the antidote in verse 13? Encouraging one another. Yeah. How, how much? Daily. Yeah. The thing we can do is try to help build each other up and, and, and reach out to each other and encourage and exhort each other so that nobody gets hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you don't encourage each other daily, 
then as people keep falling in sin, they become more hardened, they become less sensitive. And then they begin to be deceived and to think it's okay. That's the process that takes place. And so we've got to be encouraging each other and we can't wait to do it because of the danger of being hardened and becoming unreachable. So it's got to be every day we're encouraging each other to put away sin out of our lives. What do you think about that? But I don't have a window into your heart or into your thinking, into your life necessarily to see your sins like you know them. So it's it's it can be a little tricky, maybe knowing one that something needs to be said, or two maybe when to say. Good observations. Something always needs to be said. Every, every, everybody, <laughs> That's good. Everybody needs encouragement, even, you know, John, who seems like he's got it all together. Everybody needs it. And we, we, sometimes I say something to people who are probably on top of the world because I know they need it because sometimes I look like I'm on top of the world and I'm not. I think it's a valid point. Uh, I believe that's true. Um... And yet, the question still is, okay, what do you say? I think, I think it's valid to say we need to see everybody as needing it. But, but how do you, it, it is true that he's talking about, you know, heart issues and, you know, being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I mean, do you know? I mean, what do you, what do you exhort about? How do we deal with that? That's a good question. I think something that I always struggle with is not growing weary and doing good. And I think that's what I'm trying to say, is even when somebody's doing really well, they need encouragement just to keep going. Yes, I think you're right. Uh, they may need more than that. You know, sometimes people seem to be doing well, and they may be struggling with some pretty serious issues. How are we, gonna, how are we going to be able to help them more appropriately? We can we can share things from our own lives without making it necessarily uh, attacking or or accusatory of the of the individual. If I've gone through the same thing, you mentioned the thing about the sporting event uh, conflicting with the night of the gospel meeting. I was there one day and and made a choice, and I would choose differently now if I were confronted with the same opportunity. Uh, that's something I could share about me to someone else who may be struggling with situations like that to make them think about it. Good. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, also, I mean, we can try to do more positive, proactive things to help strengthen and encourage and build people up to help them be healthier spiritually and more resistant to infection. But still we have that nagging question, do you suppose we're dealing with some people who are struggling with some things that we may not, that they, they may really need something specific, and we're not necessarily giving that. Um, 
Are there ways of being able to see what people need more specifically? You can just ask them what they need. Well, why wouldn't we do that? Because it's really awkward. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do if somebody asked you? I don't need anything. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what people do. What would you do? Would you do that? Depends on who was asking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll buy that. Um, what if it was a Christian you respected that was asking? I would tell him. Would you? Mm-hmm, probably. Would you? Depends on what it was I was struggling with. Okay. <laughs> 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 yeah, that could be. Would you, you know, if, if, if somebody you respected and somebody that you felt like was sincere and cared about you, if they said, you know, um, what are you struggling with? Would you tell them? It might partly depend on my perception of their ability to help. I'm getting some yeses and some not sures. Um, It may be that more people would than we think. We just don't ask. Um, Because I know for me personally that I don't get asked very often. And generally when I do, I talk. And I'm glad for the opportunity. I realize not everybody is going to feel that way. But I think a lot of people, if they thought you cared and you were sincere, they had some trust in you. I think there might be more people who would say more than what we think there would. I don't think it's bad to ask. Now there may, if somebody is pretty closed and doesn't answer that, then there may be some other things we can do. But I don't think it's bad to ask. But there's some other things besides asking that will help us diagnose their situation. I was thinking that the more you talk to people, the more you find that they're a lot like you. Like, I think we all have some of the same problems. So just maybe say something that you know you can do. That's a good point. That Sometimes we can understand people well when we understand ourselves because we are a lot alike. Yeah, we are. And I mean, sometimes that can be really helpful. Um, I think just getting closer to each other and caring about each other and taking an interest in each other's lives. Sometimes you can see things without being told if you pay attention and you have some level of involvement. We probably don't know much if the extent of our contact contact is saying, hi, fine, every time we see each other. I find that, because I'm with Ariel and Joe was saying, that the more that I confess of what I'm doing, the more they they are open because they understand that you're just like them, as in either you sin, you either sin or else you do the same thing, or as they see you as human, which in, in many ways sometimes when I'm talking to someone, I feel that they're 
more godly than I am, more spiritual. So they, they're, they're perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. Of course, I know otherwise. And I should. But this is the way many times I feel. And the more they open up to me, the more I want to open up to them. So it's much easier if you... Of course, I haven't run into many situations, but the more I open up to certain people, the more they will, they will in turn open up to me. But there's a problem with that. <clears throat> if you open up to people and you tell them some of the things you're struggling with, then won't you discourage them and hurt them because you'll disappoint them. They thought you did better than that. And so you wouldn't want to discourage somebody by letting them know that you're not perfect. What about that? Don't we think that way? That's, that's devil thinking. <laughs> yeah. Don't you hear that? I, I get that all the time. You know, what's wrong with that way of looking at it? You're the only one that thinks you're... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I noticed in First uh, John where he said... Uh, you know, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It doesn't say we deceive anyone else. <laughs> they probably knew it anyway, so we're probably not going to surprise them. It would just be nice if we acknowledged it. Uh, I don't know. It seems to me like, you know, if we want to ha- be a good spiritual influence on others, we need to take the lead in humility and honesty and, and realness. And... Uh, that some of the people I've looked up to the most have been some of the people who've been the most honest and forthright in talking about their sins. There was a man who, who influenced me a lot years ago. He was an elder in a church. I remember getting together one evening with just a handful of people, maybe 15 or 20 at the most, out of the congregation. We just kind of went around and talked about some of the things that we were struggling with and 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 you know we kind of we, we programmed that basically and somebody was kind of taking notes that would lead a prayer for the things that anybody wanted to talk about that they needed prayer for and this elder began it by talking about how he needed prayers because of his you know struggling with looking at women and you know he went on to talk about that fairly not not graphically in a bad sense but but fairly openly and honestly and you don't really think of an elder having a problem with looking at women. You know, I mean, that was kind of like, whoa. And what it did for me, I think probably for the other people, it kind of opened the door. You know, you felt like you could actually talk about what you struggled with because he was honest. And I remember it may, it may have been in that very same evening that there was another lady in that circle that I had had a lot of hard, a lot of problems sort of with my patience with her. She was kind of, um, I don't know what the word is, kind of rigid and sort of, in, in, I don't know, just, she was, she was annoying because sometimes she was just very mm, bullheaded about some things. And, you know, like she just wanted it her way. And that was what it was going to be. And when she got around to her turn, she talked with, you know, tears about how she struggled so much with, with, you know, all of that. She really, 
as she talked about what she struggled with is exactly what I had seen in her. And I never again had a hard time with my attitude toward her once I realized she hated that in herself and she was trying to overcome it. And we prayed about that. And, and, and you know, really, I don't know how much of it was that my attitude changed and how much of it was that as we prayed for her, the Lord helped her, but I didn't even really see her so much that way after that. You know, it was weird. It was really helpful to me in my attitude because, you know, you don't feel resentment towards somebody who's struggling with something. I struggle with a lot of things myself. And, you know, I realize that sometimes you don't like the way you are and you're trying to change that, but that you struggle with that. And so it was really helpful to me. And uh, she was actually an elder's wife. And, uh, you know, I really thought it was really helpful when leaders... We're just honest. And and I, I think it is. I think if we want to be a good leader and a good influence, we ought to lead in humility. And I'll tell you the other thing. How do you feel if you think that all other Christians, at least the good ones, have no problems? How does that make you feel? Yeah, I can't do this. I'm not like they are. I mean, isn't there a sense in which we need to be a role model of what we do in dealing with our problems? That we're honest, that we turn to the Lord, that we seek to correct ourselves and so forth? I mean, and instead of just leaving the impression that if, if you ever fall, you don't fit in here. So, I think we need honesty and humility. I think that's a good point. I think we can expect that from our brothers and sisters. There's a lot of Christians who would like the opportunity to have encouragement in their sin struggles, but nobody asks. I mean, you know, I've done a lot of talking to young men about various issues that young men face. And one of the first questions I ask when I realize that there's something that they're struggling with is, who else have you talked to about this problem? And I'd say about 80% of the time, I get the answer, nobody. (laughs) Now, I don't know. They're talking to me. I imagine they'd probably talk to somebody else if somebody else had talked to them. Now, I want to turn this a little differently also. This is... I think a really key text in verse 13. I mean, we need help. And this is one of the ways God says to do it. But I think there's another barrier we face when we, in trying to apply this, you know, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now clearly here, the encouraging each other is not the superficial you know, smile, God loves you, you know, have a nice day, you know, he's not saying encourage in the sense of, you know, try to make everybody feel happy and, you know, be really lighthearted and tell a lot of jokes so everybody's, you know, sometimes people think of encouraging person as a person you just really love to be around. But he's talking about encouraging in connection with the, with the deceitfulness of sin. He's talking about spiritual encouragement. Now the problem I see with that is we just don't push ourselves to do that when we're around each other. What do we talk about when we're around each other? 
you guys are an unusual group, and so that may not be so much true of you. But, but do you ever find yourself talking about a lot of other things that don't have much to do with anything that's important? You know, I was frustrated, and I'm going to talk to some people about this. I already have a little bit. But I was frustrated last night after church. We're a group that we really like each other, I think. You know, we don't leave the church building for a long time. And it's gotten to the point where it's not many people leave the church building for a long time. It's not a whole lot of us, but, but most will stay around and talk. But, but, you know, it's the little groups clustering together and chatting about whatever they have as common interests. And last night, it was frustrating to me because I was talking with one brother and he was opening up about some things that were just on his mind. It's been around his family a good bit. They're not Christians. They're worse than not Christians. They're really horrible. And that's just gotten him discouraged a little bit. Not terribly, but he wanted to talk. And I just kind of was over there beside him and he started talking about this. And, and it was good. It was a good conversation. And then I walked up to another brother and was talking to him about how he was doing. He had a really bad weekend. Um, he doesn't, his family are not Christians. And, you know, he'd been around a lot of his family and extended family in some bad situations, a bad environment. And it had really gotten him down. He was frustrated. He was discouraged. And, you know, he was talking about that. And, and we talked for a good while. And he's pretty close with several other people. I kind of looked around. And... Most everybody's kind of clustered off. And some of that may have been spiritual. But I don't think it was for most of them. <laughs> you know, most of them were kind of enjoying chatting about whatever with the people they most like to be around. And it's like, here's, here's two guys who need help. And by the time they need help, if it had been good spiritual conversation, <coughs> I don't know for sure that it was. And I just know <laughs> what those things usually are in our group. Uh, it's just like, wow. You know, here's a couple of guys who need help and nobody's even noticing because they're too busy talking about whatever this life things they've got on their mind. And I just think we need to be really sensitive toward using our time well. I'm not saying that every conversation has to be, you know, some scathing rebuke or some, you know, deep conversation about some horrible thing in our lives, but... But being more conscious of, of being edifying and of, of strengthening each other spiritually, I think we need that. I mean, we're bombarded by the deceitfulness of sin. We're in a corrupt world. You can talk about, you know, movies and sports with anybody. You can't talk about the Lord with anybody. I don't know, what do you think about that? There are a few people for me that <clears throat> when I talk with them, probably nine times out of ten, it is a spiritual discussion and I just thoroughly enjoy it and almost feel guilty when we have some other kind of discussion. But it's just that's just a few people. So my question is, is that is that because is that because of my perception that that it ends up not being a spiritual discussion with the others, or or what? I know exactly what you mean. I would say the same thing. You know, some people it's just so natural. I mean, 
you know, you can try to talk about something else and you can't hardly help but talk about things that are more important and those conversations are so much more encouraging. Wow, they're so much more helpful. Uh, and there are other people that it's more difficult. Um, they're probably the people that need the greater amount of help to think spiritually. I, I suspect it's mostly that some people just, you know, they just don't talk a lot about those kind of things and they don't take hints and, you know, we kind of lance a spiritual subject and it kind of gets cut off and shifted and all that. Um, we may, may have to be a little bit more consistent about just pushing that. Those are the same people I would be willing to share my struggles with. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, because you have a bond that amounts to something. It seems like that many times it it seems that as Christians, we do not take, do not grab hold of the opportunity of all of the Christians being gathered together to talk of spiritual things. It seems like we're always talking of different things except God when we're in the church building and of course it's at the church, but our focus should still be on God. Because if it really, if, <coughs> if the service really had an impact on us, we'd still be thinking about God. It seems like we do not take a hold of the opportunity to talk about God as we should. It's like we confine God to the parameters of the worship service. I mean, we're bad about not talking about the Lord with our non-Christian friends as well, for that matter. You know, uh, it's like he doesn't belong there. Uh, but, but man, I mean, there's obviously other opportunities we need to take. I mean, I think we need to be in each other's home. I think we need to, to you know, reach out and more pro, proactively encourage, take initiative, go and see brethren, you know, go and you know, pray together or whatever. But, but you know, we see each other in some specific situations. And, and it, you know, it's not like there's something evil about having a secular conversation or that we should never do that. It's that that shouldn't be the thing that we find most fulfilling or that we're thinking about most often. I think, you know, there's such danger in the deceitfulness of sin that Encouraging each other day by day. I don't know. This, I don't know that I can express all those things very well, but this is a passage that means a lot to me. What do you think? Any other comments? Thoughts? <coughs> so he says, you know, for if we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance from and to the end. See, that's the thing. Somebody gets hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and then they don't hold fast until the end, then, you know, they are like the generation that lost out on the rest, on the promised land. Um, so that's, you know, his, his point is, we've got, to, we've got to stay, we've got to hold firm, we've got to keep going. And if we don't, then we miss out, even though we've had a good start. And that goes back to verse 6, you know, also kind of coming back to that theme of holding fast until the end. All right, any comments or questions through verse 15? <clears throat> 16 to 19. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, do not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses... And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 
and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Starts with three or four questions here. Um, and his questions really were basically about what? Yeah, because what had happened with them? They disobeyed God and they weren't allowed to enter the camp. Yes, but what had they experienced before this? Satan from Egypt. Yeah, God had delivered them. They had seen God's redeeming power. They'd seen his outstretched arm and hand uh, delivered them. They'd seen the, the Red Sea part. They'd seen the plagues. They'd seen God lead them and guide them through the, the wilderness. You know, after they'd seen all of that, they sinned and fell in the wilderness. And that's a, that's a real shocking thing. And, and when they didn't believe God, <coughs> then God swore that they wouldn't enter his rest. You know, God's oath barred the entrance to the promised land for them because after having experienced the salvation they did, they fell back into sin. So they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now obviously that's a powerful passage for us because we've been saved. You know, we've, we've come into the Lord. And the danger is that we will fall in the wilderness like they did. Do, you know, do you think that this analogy ought to bother us any? Worry us any? I mean, you know, It's just, it's just so, um, I don't know, it's so frightening to imagine 600,000 Israelites leaving, Can leaving Egypt and two getting into the promised land. I mean, this is a, this is a, just a total defection from the Lord because of this evil, unbelieving heart. They weren't able to enter. So he's really trying to make us stop and question and ask and say, you know, do you realize what's going on here? Do you realize the danger here? Do we understand that this is a really, this is really a serious problem? Maybe we should go back to the, uh, the passage in, in, you know, 13. That in part we, we exhort one another because we realize the danger involved. Because we know that Wow, the track record of God's people in the wilderness is not very good. And we're in the wilderness between the deliverance and the promised land. And, and if there's so much, there's so much risk of falling because of unbelief. I think he's really trying to stir them up. He goes to that passage and he's saying, guys, they fell because of unbelief. And he'll start out verse 4, Therefore let us fear if, etc. And so he's saying this to try to scare us, to try to wake us up, try to make us realize there is great danger. 
this seriously enough. Comments and questions? I don't want to get distracted by looking somewhere else, but you shared this recently with a group of which I was part. First Corinthians 10 says basically, I think the same thing, and I, I had missed that before, and that was really, that was powerful to me to see that coming alive there, and, and now to see it again here in uh, Hebrews chapter three. Absolutely, yeah. First Corinthians 10 does the very same thing. Very powerful words talking about the alls of those who had left and and been blessed in ways similar to us with sort of a baptism and a Lord's Supper and, and so forth. And then with most of them, God was not well pleased and they fell in the wilderness. And that most was 603,548 out of 603,550. The percentage there is really low of those who made it. And, uh, and that's written for our, a warning for us. And so he's doing the very same thing here. This is the, the same kind of passage, same kind of warning. Other thoughts? This is kind of a side note, but like I noticed in the end of verse 18, like he said that um, the ones who couldn't enter his rest were the ones who were disobedient. And then in verse 19, it says the ones who weren't able to enter were the ones who didn't believe. And just like the connection there with not believing and not obeying, like they go together. You can't really have one without the other. Yes. I agree. This is a good passage to show that. This whole thing is, you know, he, he keeps going back and forth, really, in this. Uh, the end of 4.2, it was not united by faith in those who heard. But then at the, in, the end of 4.6, they failed to enter because of disobedience. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's a matter of faith, it's a matter of obedience, it's really saying the same thing. Again, in the end of verse 11, example of disobedience. So, you know, this is that they were unwilling to believe and obey. You know, it's kind of all one one kind of thing. Is it important that we obey God? You know, does it really make that much difference? You know, this is an excellent passage to show that it does. This is a critical matter. Um, I can't, I'm trying to remember the uh, occasion for this. Uh, I can't write offhand. Um, somebody I was talking to, it's been a little while, I was trying to make the point that, um, you know, in the Old Testament, God was strict and he demanded obedience and we had to really walk the line. But in the New Testament, God's a lot laxer and he just sort of, you know, not a big deal, you know, just try to, whatever. I think uh, this is one of the passages that I thought of that really deal with that. I mean, it is important that we obey God. So also, I mean, you can't read Hebrews and believe once they've always said, you know. I mean, this is just saying, if we don't continue obeying and walking by faith, we'll fall. This is not trying to make us, you know, doubt God when we're really living for Him and faithful. But so often, you know, Christians, I think in this generation, we're becoming lax, we're kind of drifting back into some of their old ways. And when that happens, we need to stop and think about the eternal consequences involved in doing that. So this is just, this is really old-fashioned preaching. <laughs> you know, this is, this is a, a kind of a 
you know, hellfire and brimstone, sort of a, a passage that's just really trying to get us to think about the seriousness of this. And, and I don't think we look at a passage like this enough in, in, in those kinds of connections. I mean, when we get to thinking that, well, you know, we can kind of do our own thing and obedience isn't such a big deal and all that. Wow, read this. Other comments and questions? All right, chapter 4. We'll go ahead and read 1 through 11. It may take us a while to work our way through this, but uh, but I think that's the whole context, so 1 through 11. Therefore, let us fear. Lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also... But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter, enter that rest, just as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said thus somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day, today, saying, Through David, after so long a time, just as it has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Okay, so he's saying we need to fear so that the same thing doesn't happen to us. Now, there is a promise remaining of entering into his rest. And he makes the point that, and this is a lot to this rest idea, maybe more than I even understand, but, you know, Canaan, was a rest. They were they were headed toward their land of rest. And yet, that generation did not get to enter because of unbelief. Did anybody ever go into the land of Canaan? Yeah, of course. The next generation did. So you might think, okay, so they got the rest and that's it. But Psalm 95 picks up on that and, and talks about, you know, them not entering my rest. And so it looks to me like that Psalm 95 was envisioning a rest that the people of his generation could enter. That there's more to this rest business than just them being in the land of Canaan. That God's rest was foreshadowed by the land of Canaan. But it was, it was a greater thing than that. And if it hadn't been, then you wouldn't have used this in Psalm 95. They'd already been in the rest, and that would have been that. So he's saying there's still this promise, this concept of being able to enter God's rest. Really, Canaan was sort of a foreshadowing of that. Sometimes we think about it that way. Do you have any songs about that? Canaan's land, I'm on my way. Now what's Canaan's land? Rest. Yeah, well, yeah. But what's he talking about? I mean, are we going to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land? 
heaven. Yeah, we understand that. That's our Canaan. That's our promised rest. And we also do some things with uh, how they got into Canaan. Crossing the Jordan. Yeah. So what are we saying? On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Now, I suppose Jordan's stormy banks, maybe the idea that death is often kind of a violent thing for us, turbulent or whatever. You know, so we have to cross a kind of a turbulent Jordan, but we, we're looking over into the promised land. We can see it over there. And that's where his possessions lie, because where your heart is, there where your, tre- tre- where your treasure is, there will be also, so we've invested in heaven. And uh, I won't have to cross Jordan alone. We sing that. You know, the idea that the Lord will be with us as we die, and we cross Jordan into our promised land. So we, even in song, I don't know if we sing, sing those with understanding, but, but we're singing about the idea of coming into our Canaan, our rest land. And we understand that the physical land was not the culmination of God's rest. It was sort of a shadow of the greater rest, God's rest, that we enter. And so that's kind of the thing he keeps saying here in one way or the other. Um, uh, Therefore let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest. The promise remains because of, of Psalm 95 that you may, uh, you know, seem to come short of it. For indeed, we've had good news preached to us, just as they also. The word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said. You know, and, and he quotes Psalm, not Psalm 95 again. So he's saying, okay, they had sort of a, uh, they had good news. They had a, the opportunity to enter the promised land. But they didn't, because of unbelief. We've had the gospel, the good news preached to us. There is danger that we also won't enter our promised land, because of unbelief. Now, he talks about us entering the rest, he makes the point, in verse 3, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So if we don't enter into God's rest, it won't be because it wasn't ready. It's been ready. The rest is there. God's rest is available. The only question is, do we have the faith and obedience to continue firm into the end so we get that promised rest? And he speaks of God's rest in terms of the seventh day. And God rests on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. So God's got this rest of his. And we are being invited to share in God's rest. It's a rest that was foreshadowed by, even the seventh day Sabbath, a rest that was foreshadowed by Canaan. But our rest is higher and greater than that. It's the rest that God entered on the seventh day. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, he speaks of it as my rest. So he says, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He says, today is the time. You know, we we have now a new opportunity to enter that rest. And the generation in the wilderness, they didn't, will we? I think he's making a pretty powerful point. Now, why would you call heaven a rest? No temptations. 
no fight against sin. You know, it's not easy to fight. War is tough. And uh, are we at war? We're being bombarded. We're being, you know, and who are we at war against? And the principalities and the powers and the spiritual force of wickedness and all the things he says in Ephesians 6, which is pretty powerful. We've got a, a tiring, exhausting, strenuous fight we face every day as we're being tempted to sin. It's going to be a great relief. It's going to be a tremendous rest to be at peace without that constant daily fight and pressure to overcome sin. I think that's the greatest rest that we can think about. And uh, so we do have. We It is our rest. Now, we have sort of, like they did, a preliminary experience of that rest. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, we do have a certain rest. The deliverance from the burden of sin, from the guilt, and, and all that. But, but whether or not you're talking about the land of Canaan, or whether or not you're talking about the seventh-day Sabbath, whether or not you're talking about the forgiveness of our sins in Christ, all of those rests are, are just a, a, a foretaste of the real rest we will enter if we don't fall because of unbelief. Comments and questions on all that? We're going through this. probably think more often of the rest from our having to work every day. You know, that'd be the first thing when you think of, well, I want to take a rest. Uh, it's because I've worked hard and I'm tired. It's uh, probably a misconception. Uh, yeah. In, in, in one sense, obviously, there's something to that because the fact that our work is, by the sweat of our brow, is because of sin. You know, but, but, you know, productive activity, God designed for man even before the fall. You know, he was to cultivate and keep the garden. And, you know, the, the work we do physically is certainly not as challenging and not as important as the, the spiritual battle we're fighting. So I think we ought to think of this more in spiritual terms. Says if if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He, you know, we've got our rest, guys. You know, if 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 Canaan exhausted it, then he Psalm ninety five wouldn't have kept talking about the rest as if it was something future. Now, do you know what the Greek equivalent of Joshua is? Jesus. Jesus. This is Jesus. This is the word Jesus. He means Joshua. But it's the word Jesus because that's how Jesus is. Joshua was translated in Greek. So some of the translations actually put Jesus there. It's referring to Joshua, but Joshua and Jesus are the same name, just in different languages. And that's kind of cool because you've got Joshua leading them into the the physical Canaan rest, and Jesus leading us, the, the other Joshua. <laughs> into our greater spiritual rest and deliverance.
the idea seems to make sense, you know, talking about their arrest and our arrest. And, and then, but I have a little trouble with, like, verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. But then he gives the opposite. Just as he said, they shall not enter the rest. He's just referring there, just as he said, talking about the rest, because he uses an opposite. We shall enter, just like he said, they shall not. Well, maybe. I think the point may be there that it's we who have believed to enter that rest because they didn't because of unbelief. So what's going to take for us to enter that rest is belief. You know, I think I think that may be his point there. You look at verse 2. For indeed, we've had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word that they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Well, why? Because they, they were in unbelief. Uh, he's also making the point, though, through here, that there's still a rest available. Uh, but I, I think here it may be more the idea it's for believers because the unbelievers were not allowed to enter. Is there something with just as he said that probably gives me a little more difficulty making sense of this? Uh, for we have, for we who have believed enter that rest, and then you see that word just, just like or just. So I'm expecting a comparison that's just like it, but it's he's saying something that's just opposite. I don't have a good answer on that one. I don't know. That's where I was saying, okay, just like he was talking about the rest at that point, but he was saying they shall not enter because of their disbelief, we shall enter because of our belief. Mm-hmm. Is the only sense I can, I guess the way it makes sense. That, that's the way I see it. it. It would almost make more sense if it said contrasted to instead of just as. Yes. Yes. Okay. I understand so what you're saying. It's a comparison there, but it's a contrast, not a similarity. Yeah, it amounts to that. They're, they're equal truths. You know, yeah. The question is, who gets to enter our rest? Well, it's those who believe. Just like he said, unbelief keeps you out of the rest. That's really the point, I think. So he doesn't quote the whole verse. I mean, you know, he does what we do. He quotes a snatch. But, but you know, the fact that God swore in his wrath they shall enter my rest meant they were excluded. They couldn't get in. And we know from the passage because of unbelief. But, but so he's making the point, you have to believe to enter that rest because God will keep you out if you don't. Just like he said, you can't get in. Verse 7 is more of a similarity comparison, isn't it? You know, he again fixes a day. Is that same for us? There's another day. Just like he said to them today. So there was a day then and there's a day now. I see that is a little easier to Mm -hmm. comprehend because it's the same as instead of contrasted to. Yeah, I agree. Um... I think his point there is this idea that Canaan didn't totally uh, fill up the idea of the rest because he's still speaking about it. And so, yeah, that may be a more positive just as.
So, you know, they had their Joshua that led them into their rest. We have our Jesus that leads us into our rest. And that means there is a rest. It's a Sabbath rest. It's a, it's a, it's a release rest for the people of God. For the one who's entered it, his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So if we get into God's rest, we'll be able to rest from our works. I think here works in the sense of the struggle against sin, the constant battle, the constant fight we're working on. But let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. You know, it's of paramount importance we get into the rest. It's so vital that we not fall. So let's be diligent, really put forth effort to trust and obey so we'll get into that rest. Don't miss this rest. So comments and thoughts on all this. I'm getting tired. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we're not, we're probably, uh, you know, declared ceasefire or something. It's a really good exhortation. It's a really good exhortation to take God seriously. You know, don't play around with this. God is a God who's willing to flunk us all. You know. He flunked all but two. So, I mean, you know, we can't think that just because we're normal, nice, religious people, we're good church members. That we're good then. You know, as long as I'm kind of with the norm, as long as I'm kind of, you know, I'm in the, the wave, then I'll be fine. Maybe not. I mean, the only two that were fine back then were Joshua and Caleb, who stood and resisted everybody else. How did we get too lulled to sleep or too relaxed about it? As long as we're nice people doing nice things at nice times and whatever, then we're okay. This 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 is really an exhortation to be taken seriously. Let's be diligent to enter. Really work at it. Other comments and thoughts on this section? Something that's really powerful for me is that if we miss this rest, if we miss this place that's been set up for us, then we've we've wasted our lives. Because this is what our lives have been leading up to is preparing us to go into heaven. This is what our lives have been given to us for is to serve God with all our heart. And if we've missed this rest, we've missed everything. Yeah. Uh, you're exactly right. I mean we're not used to things that are so serious like that. If I I miss the turn, I'll, you know, turn around and come back. There's no coming back on this one. You either get in or you don't. I mean, you know how the Israelites, they tried to turn around and go back. (laughs) That didn't work. You know, God had sworn you won't get in. They didn't get in. So it is, it's really, 
It's a really serious matter. Right, any other comments or questions? Well, I'm going to stop here and tell you something else for just a, a little bit uh, that I think would be good to be thankful about and to be praying about. Um, some of you know some about some of this and some of you don't have any idea about any of this probably. But one of the really exciting things that's happened in Brazil recently, in the last few months, has been some evangelistic studies that Dennis and João did in Rio that led to 